please open your Bibles. I'm going to say a couple of things that some people might find a little objectionable this morning. And so because of that, I don't want you to believe in thus saith the bald guy at the front of the room. I want you to be looking into the word of God so you can say, if I'm right, it's thus saith the Lord. So I'm going to have to say what I'm saying with a bit of fear and trembling here, a bit of trepidation. I want you guys to actually be looking into the word and know that this is God talking. Okay? So we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 to 18. I'm going to start off with prayer because that's what we really, really need. Lord God, what needs to be done here this morning is far beyond anything that we could ever do. I am asking you, pleading with you that by your spirit, you would bring people from death to life. That where we stand in your, in your love and in your grace and in your mercy, where we've already come to know you, that you would call us deeper into yourself, that we would have a deeper taste for you, uh, a desire to see you more nearly, hear you more clearly, and answer you absolutely. Lord God, by your spirit, be working here. My words are not going to be adequate. I pray that you would be working through my words to call people to yourself. I remember many, those many people in our congregation who are not here this morning. I pray that as they're wherever they are because of whatever reason, that you would be working with, uh, with them too, that they would know that their church loves them and cares for them. And I pray, finally, Lord God, do a mighty work among us. Use these frail, faltering bodies, these souls that have been corrupted by our own sin and redeem them and use them to bring about, well, revival. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you may know that I actually uh, am studying at the university. Uh, my supervisor is very angry at me because I haven't done much work lately. It's a bad thing. Uh, those of you who've done grad work know how that feels. Um, but you'll know also, what many of you might not know is that I study secularization. That's the process whereby uh, culture becomes less and less religious. And the idea there is that, you know, somehow we live in a special time where People have been ignoring, where people, you know, don't, don't believe in God anymore. They ignore God or they live lives separate from God. And we, for some reason, believe this is a new thing. Um, since we're going to be looking in Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, I think you might understand that I'm going to probably tell you that that's not necessarily the case. Though because we believe that the world has changed and that the culture has changed and that people are completely different we sometimes imagine that this is a new time, that Christians have never faced this before, the people of God have never faced this before, and that because this is a new thing, we need a new time, we need to see God do a new thing among us, that we need to do different things, that we need to generally act differently than we always have. And I, I think that's true in some, case, in some sense, but it's not true in another sense. And I think we'll see that both through history and through Nehemiah this morning. Uh, people would say that it's generally the entire West that's going through this. Uh, 
quote I re read this week, a uh, quote from someone you might know, I feel there is little spirit of religion in America. And that's by William Wilberforce. The problem is, if you know who William Wilberforce is, he wrote that in 1794. That's 200 years ago if you don't know math. More than 200 years ago. I don't know math well, I'm an arts major. <laughs> but within 50 years of this guy saying this, the abolition movement that he led based on Christian principles in the United States of America had become so powerful that they elected a president by the name of uh, Lincoln. You may have heard of him. So something had changed. Another quote uh, this, uh, from a different person. Youth became scoffers at religion and blasphemers against God. Such a thing as a young man of talents turning his attention to the ministry was so rare that it would have excited astonishment. Now, that's by the Reverend Robert Stewart giving his reminiscences of the Presbyterian Church of Kentucky from 1797. <coughs> Again, more than 200 years ago. I find that truly interesting because Kentucky is where the largest seminary on the planet is right now. Within 60 years, that seminary, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, would be founded. And by the time we get to the 21st century, they would be pumping out ministers that went all around the world and a lot of them very, very competent people holding PhDs and working in churches all over the place. We've actually had pastors from, from who were trained there at this church. Something changed. A time came when people who were young moved again towards the ministry. I'll give you a third quote, a little closer to home. For three years, I labored night and day from house to house, but I could not perceive any appearance of conviction or conversion take place throughout the parish. That was by Lawrence Coughlin. He was giving his account of the word of God in Newfoundland in 1776. Now to give you an idea, in Newfoundland, by the church that he is, quote, is credited with founding, though strangely enough, he was an Anglican himself, the Wesleyan church, the Methodists as we call them, had created churches all over Newfoundland. If you go downtown onto the CBC building, the old CBC building that's being re renovated, there's a little plaque on the side of the building that talks about how people who had been converted by this man's ministry had worked so hard to make sure that schooners had radios so they could hear the Sunday service. Where, you, where radio stations like I don't, that now are not no longer Christian, like VOWR, Voice of Wesleyan Radio, were working to preach the gospel to the entire province of Newfoundland and Labrador. And that was before Confederation. Christianity was so powerful in Newfoundland for a period that by 1949, our terms of union placed within it the necessity for every man, woman, and child in Newfoundland to have a Christian education. The necessity. What happened? The, the quotes that we see here are more likely quotes that I would kind of expect to hear today. 
I mean, uh, the news the news media was all a buzz this week because the Anglican Church across town got a debit machine. I mean, they, they some sign they, and they took that as a sign of life in the church. We when we put this building up for sale, we have to be careful about what sign we put up in front of it, because if we put up a, the wrong sign, everybody's going to get the opinion that the church is dying and needs to be sold off. Because, well, that's what seems to be happening everywhere. <laughs> What's going on? What happened in those days that changed the culture so radically in short periods of time and that honestly, if what we're understanding right now is true, needs to happen again in our time? There were cultures that were dead, in, spiritually speaking. There was nothing about the word of God going forth. People weren't actually hearing the word. The people who were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ were coming against just dead stairs. People didn't come to know Jesus. And that was hundreds of years ago. And yet God did something during that period of time that changed everything, that changed these cultures into ways that, honestly, our history would be monumentally different because of what happened. What happened? Uh, to be clear, I, I think it's pretty simple. God brought a culture to life by bringing people en masse to life. He brought many individual people from death to life by saving them. I mean, when, we, when many of us think of the church losing its power, we think the 1960s or the 1990s, not the 1770s. Yet that happened then, and revival happened then, and honestly, by God's grace, it could happen again. Unfortunately, uh, when I use the word revival, in many people's minds, something bad is going on because you're thinking something that I don't mean by a revival. You see, we've had this kind of history recently where we create revivals. We plan to have a revival. You know, we're going to have a revival meeting on November 30th, whatever, and we're going to have speakers in, we're going to have people get, have a nice choir, and we're going to all have uh, an emotional experience of God, and we're going to be revived, is the theory as it goes. It comes from a bad piece of theology that, honestly, most of us will probably believe, at least tacitly, that you know, if we ramp up the emotions, if we get people to make a decision for Christ, then God necessarily has to save you. In fact, some of us probably think that that's the reason that we can call ourselves saved now. That because some point in the history of our lives, we have changed because we had this one experience and yet our lives haven't changed at all because it was just an emotional experience. It was just emotions working on our hearts. It's not a new thing. Jonathan Edwards, when he was writing in the 1760s, talks about this. False conversions that come by people who pretend to have come to Christ because they've had some emotional experience and yet nothing has changed in their lives. And for the most part, that's what we think of when we think of revival. It's why large chunks of North America are called burned over districts by some scholars of uh, evangelicalism. Places where there are large numbers of people who all will say, I had an experience of coming to Jesus. That was 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. But have you gone to church since? No. 
Do you live differently? No. Do you read your Bible? No. But I know I'm saved because I made this decision at one point. If, if any of you are that way, may I, with all humility, tell you you might not be saved. <laughs> I mean, I hate to say that, but it's true. Because salvation is something different than that. And the revival, and we can see that through what was happening in the large scale and the small scale. Remember what happened in the United States and here, even here in Newfoundland during the, 18th, the 19th century? Changed the culture. The people who came to Jesus were so radically changed that their lives looked different. Where before they were putting their time into making money and making power, they put their time and effort into making much of Jesus Christ, in getting to know them themselves and making sure that other people got to know him. That's different than just praying a prayer one night when, I, when people get your emotions ramped up or when the bass has been turned up to 10 and everything else is lower. And you see, that's what we see in Nehemiah chapter 8. I didn't talk about revival last week as the beginning of as at the beginning, because I was a little bit worried about what, where this is going. But chapter eight of Nehemiah is the beginning of a revival. When the people came and had their, that time of confession, you saw that I talked about, they felt terrible. And then, and then Nehemiah and Ezra tell the people, no, have joy because God is showing favor to us. That is the beginnings of a revival. We often miss what, what, is said here because, well, we tend to isolate parts of Nehemiah and pretend that this one part is not related to other parts. And so as we continue through Nehemiah chapter eight and into nine and 10, we're gonna have to talk about this more readily, what a revival looks like, because that's what we're going to see. And I'm going to be reading from Nehemiah chapter eight, verses nine to 18. We did one to 12 last week and I'm covering some places twice because it's important. You see, what happens when somebody actually comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ is that they become a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Again, that looks completely different from I just tacked Jesus on to my life. I have my old life and I'm just going to tack Jesus onto him and then I'm going to have fire insurance for the end of time. That's not the same thing as what we see in the Bible. You are a new person. And when many people become new people by having faith in Jesus, that's what you call a revival because it changes everything. People have come to life. So Nehemiah chapter 8 verses 9 to 18. Remember that at this point, the people are feeling very mournful because they, uh, they've heard the law and they recognize that they're sinners because as they heard the law pre preached and explained to them and understood to them, they understood that they didn't meet it. And then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. 
for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Again, the words that were declared to them was, while you are sinners, God is showing mercy to you here. He has shown value to you. He has built us up here in the midst of a people that hate us. He has called us out from death into life, from the Babylonian exile into Israel. You know that God has favor. On the second day, now again, this is important because this is not just an, uh, an event that happened at one time and everybody's emotions are really ramped up because they heard the law and they felt bad. On the second day, the heads of the father houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. Very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Some things I want you to notice here that while we uh, hopefully wrap up quickly because I've only got one application this week. Four implications, but one application. But first of all, notice that the joy, again, that the joy of the Lord was their strength. Now, don't paper this over. As I said last week, this doesn't, or the last time I preached, this is not just a tack on phrase. This isn't you know, some kind of liturgical phrase that means nothing. When you say the joy of the Lord is your strength, we're saying that the Lord's joy, our desire for the Lord, our love for the Lord, our joy for the Lord powers everything else. It doesn't mean that you should just tack on smiles when you come to church because the joy of the Lord is your strength. No, it means that if you don't have joy, Seek the Lord that you might have joy in him because it's joy in him that's going to bring about everything else. I have to repeat this again because what I'm going to say could be very badly misinterpreted. If you forget that the joy of the Lord is your strength, that the main point is the joy of the Lord. Because what they then do is they obey the Lord. <laughs> and because obeying the Lord is a good thing, right? Amen? Amen. Obeying the Lord is a really, really good thing. Reading your Bible is a good thing. Can I get an amen? amen. Yeah. Please do it. But 
we can do it very badly. And I think oftentimes we do because we imagine that the joy of the Lord is not the main point. We imagine that reading the Bible is the main point or that doing the works of righteousness is the main point instead of the Lord being the main point. And you see, they don't miss it. Get this. Verse 13. Just make sure I've got this right here. On the second day, the heads of the father's houses, not everybody, the heads of the father's houses and all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe to study the words of the law. And just a couple of things you should really, really notice here. First of all, not everybody does it. It's the head of the father's houses of all the people and the priests and the Levites. Now, that means that there are other things that need to be done in the land of Israel. Let's face it, if everybody's studying the word of the Lord every day for the rest of their lives, there's not gonna be a lot of farming done. And in times when there's, you know, need for agriculture, well, if you don't have farming, everybody's going to die pretty quickly. But instead, they've figured out that, you know, it's important, the leaders should know this stuff, the leaders should follow this stuff, and so we're going to make sure that all of the leaders seek after the Lord and come to know it, and then they will tell us, the normal people, what the Lord has said but it's important that we have people, that we have leaders who look deeply into this. This is why we pay Pastor Steve to sit in his office and read the Bible and study. It's why we give him days of the week where his only job is to study because we need to know the word of the Lord. And notice a second thing. They don't say they come together and read the word of God. They come together and they study the word of God. Now there's a difference here. As one of my favorite preachers puts it, if you rake, you get leaves. If you dig, you get diamonds. They're digging. They're actually looking into the word of the, of the Lord. They're studying the law and they're examining it to find out really what it says. And notice they're doing it slightly differently than we would. And we'll see this in a few moments, but they're not actually just reading it and studying it to try and reaffirm their understandings. They're not studying so that they can come up with a theory as to why God really means that it's okay for them to be like Babylonians and not actually follow the law of God, which, you know, honestly, we as humans do. I don't know how many books I've read recently about how, no, no, the Bible really says that extramarital sex is okay. It doesn't. You can, I can get you some books that'll try to say that it does. They're wrong. And they're leading people to damnation, but you can find them. There are going to be books that'll tell you that it's okay to just not preach the word of God to other people and help them come to know Jesus. You know, we can just live and let live. Don't need to worry about that whole evangelism and making disciples thing. Despite the fact that Jesus has direct commands telling us that because they've studied and they realized that in the original Greek and in the culture, that didn't really mean what we think it means. That's not the way these guys study. And again, this is, stems a little bit from the fact that the joy of the Lord is their strength. You see, the Bible for them is not a method of reaffirming themselves. It's not a method of getting them to 
feel better about themselves. It's a method of getting to know the Lord and the joy of the Lord is their strength. They desire to see more of the Lord because the Lord gives them their joy. Not being seen as righteous, not having people recognize how big their brains are. They desire to see what the Lord says and so they study his word. They look into what the Lord has said and then they take what the word, word of the Lord says, what thus saith the Lord, and then they apply it to their lives. That's the kind of study they're doing. That's the kind of study we need to be doing. It's different. They studied the law, not just read it. Not only that, they don't just do it themselves. That like individually in a nice little room and figuring out you know all the things that can do it. They do it in a community. It's all the leaders gathered together. And not only do they actually just do it among themselves, they actually get somebody from outside who is, uh, as Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 says, a guy who had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and do it and teach his statutes and rules in Israel. The guy named Ezra. They got an expert in to help them see what the word actually says. They're not interested in just being reaffirmed. They're not interested in pooling their ignorance. They're interested in knowing what God says so they can obey it. They study the word of the Lord. And again, I, I, just, I don't think this can be mentioned too often. They don't do it in the desire to just have a tick box, to say, I've read those, studied the word. I can quote it in Greek or Hebrew. This would be Hebrew, not Greek. They're, saying, they're doing this because they know that it's the word of the Lord and they need to know the word of the Lord because they desire to know the Lord more closely because they've been changed because they've come to know who God is. And because they know who God is, they desire to know him more. And in desiring to know him more, they study his word. But they don't just study his word. I repeat verses 15 to 18. Well, actually I start with 14. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. This is not a lot of fun. Remember the context they're in? They're part, they just came back from the Babylonian captivity. There's people all around them that hate their guts. So much so that they tried to attack. You remember they had to build the wall with weapons in one hand and trowels in the other. And now they're going to be told, go live in booths. Get rid of the houses that you've got. Don't live in those. Live in booths because this is what the Lord has commanded. Now, the, there's reasons for the Feast of Sukkot. I'll, we can deal with that when you know, we, I get a chance to preach about the Feast of Sukkot. But suffice it to say that this is something that the Lord has commanded for good reason for the people of Israel to do. And they hadn't been doing it. And then they recognize that they need to do it. And so they don't, actually just sit together and figure out a way that we can understand why our present tradition makes more sense and we don't need to listen to what the word of God says. No, they just do it. Look at this. 
and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns in Jerusalem. Go out into the hills and bring branches of olive wild, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. And so the people argued with their elders and didn't do this. No. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his own roof. And just skip down a little bit. And you can see all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in booths. They saw what the word of God had said. They understood what the word of God was saying to them specifically. And so they did it. Imagine that. That, that, that's why you can understand that these guys are different than what they would have been regularly. Normal people, people who are not actually changed by God, and you know, I, I speak as someone who for a very long period of my life was not someone changed by God, don't obey God that readily. They don't see what God commands and then say, oh, well, I guess God commanded, I guess I have to do that. No, they try to come up with reasons why, well, you know, God wouldn't really want me to do that. He wants me to be happy. He doesn't want me to live in a, he doesn't want me to live in a tent. He wants me to live in a nice house. It's not what the word says, but they follow the word. They obey what they see in the word. And you see, all of this has been an effect of what we saw last time because God has changed something in them. God has worked in their lives. That, that morning that they had about their sin wasn't just a put on. It wasn't just the fact that they were been singing all day. It wasn't that the sound team had put up the bass or anything. It wasn't that the pastor had preached something very uh, uplifting that day that made everybody want to come forward at the, at the end of the service. No, they had really been changed so that when they have joy, it's based in the Lord. And when they obey him, it's not because of some put on that they need to do. It's not, the, it's not some kind of froth at the top. It's the desire to know the Lord because the joy of the Lord is their strength. They obey what they see. In short, they seek God above all else. It's important to note that they don't seek God to the exclusion of all else, but they seek God first. There are people who still do their, do the agriculture, like I said. There are people who still do the leading, like I said. There are people who do all sorts of different things, but the first and most important thing is to obey and follow the Lord. I find it interesting because that's actually what we, what we in Newfoundland, because of our Christian history, actually have as our motto. See if I can pronounce this properly in Latin so everybody will think I'm smart. Curete prime regnum dei. Curete, seek ye. You, seek, it's, it's imperative. Prime, first. Regnum dei, the kingdom of God. I think you recognize that from the Gospel of Matthew. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. We see that operating here in Nehemiah. That's what they're doing. They're seeking first the kingdom of God. And, all, and as the passage goes in Matthew, and all other things will be added on. But they seek first the kingdom of God. 
They don't seek their holy. They, and I, I say this a little advisedly because you, it's good to be holy. We here at the church are doing a year of holiness. They don't seek holiness for holiness sake. They seek holiness for God's sake. They don't seek Bible knowledge for Bible knowledge's sake. They seek Bible knowledge so that they might know the Lord. They don't seek to worship on Sunday mornings or whenever they did, I'm guessing Saturdays they would do the worship there, Jews, just so that they'll have a good feeling in their heart because they don't want just the good feeling. They don't want a good, effinescent little feeling. They want to have the joy of the Lord because the joy of the Lord is their strength. You see, I think that's where we, as a people, went wrong. Uh, Hate to say it, we have gone wrong. As a people, we've we've lost the things that the Lord has done for us, among us. We don't, don't live in a culture that loves Jesus. I mean, I'm more likely to hear the name of Jesus Christ spoken as a swear word, even today, on the Lord's Day, here in Newfoundland, than I'm here, I am to hear it in praise. I am not likely to meet people who desire to know the Lord above all else. I'll meet a couple. Praise God for them. Praise God that you guys exist and that you love Jesus. But that's not the normal thing of the culture. I think we've gone, and I think honestly, the first part, the place that went astray was us in the church. I mean that generally, I don't necessarily know that Calvary Baptist Church can be blamed for absolutely everything that's wrong with our culture, but let's face it, for a long time, we've turned Jesus into a method instead of the goal. We've turned God into a thing that gets us stuff instead of the all-surpassing joy that he is. We've imagined that we can have good families because we know God. Well, yes, (laughs) you you do get, there are good things, if you follow God's law, well, generally things go well for you because he kind of designed us and he loves us. But if you make those things your end goal, the joy of the Lord isn't your strength. The joy of your family is your strength. If you, if you seek after Jesus because Jesus can make you rich, and you know what? There are good things about following Jesus. You know, you learn not to spend stuff too, too much. You learn to be generous. Those are good financial things. But if that's, if that's your goal, then the joy of money is your strength, not the joy of the Lord. And let's face it, All of those things are false. I love my family more than most things in the world. But let's face it, they'll let me down a lot. People who love you do that. And if I'm focused on them as my joy, my joy will always be fleeting depending on how my family is doing. If my bank account is my joy, as the bank account gets smaller, I'll lose joy. And as my bank account gets bigger, I'll have bigger joy. And let's face it, it'll all go away someday anyway. We have a liberal government, they like taxing us. (laughs) Sorry, political joke. 
But we need to have the joy of the Lord as our strength. If you want to have the life that Nehemiah is talking about, that you see in the people of God around Nehemiah there in the 6th century BC, seek the Lord, seek his joy. And that is my one and only application today. I'm going to have a few implications for it, but there is only one application. Seek God. Friends, seek God above all else. If you have joy this morning, seek God. Even if your joy really is in the Lord today, even if, if you're saying today, the Lord has been gracious to me, I have joy, then seek him more like the people of Israel did when they learned of the goodness of God. Seek him more. There is more joy to be had at the right hand of God than in anything else. So if you're receiving joy now, seek God further. If you lack holiness, if you find that your actions don't match your words, I, I, I'm gonna say yes, repent and seek to do the better things, follow the discipline. But unless you primarily seek God in it, you're going to fail. Seek to do the discipline because you're seeking God. Seek the joy of the Lord if you lack holiness. If your actions aren't good, seek the Lord. And friends, if you lack joy this morning, if you don't have any of the joy of the Lord, if today has been a difficult day to get here, to wake up, to come in, seek the Lord. Friends, taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are they who trust in him. There is nothing greater than the Lord God. Seek him. And I'm not gonna say just, you know, do, I am going to say read your Bible and pray and do discipline and all this kind of stuff, but not because you need to read the Bible and pray and do discipline. I mean because you get to know God. Read your Bible because he's talking to you. I mean... Do you realize how amazing that is? All of you have a copy of God talking directly to you. And all you have to do is read it. Like from generations and generations, these things were hidden from people. You couldn't get them. I, 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 you could get them for free here. Honestly, if you talk to me after the service, I'll hand you one. Seek the Lord for your joy. And finally, and this is going to be going against our generally individualistic culture, if we as a church desire to see revival and we desire to see the city reached for Jesus, yes, we do need to have a church. We do need to have you know, places for people to meet. We do have to have drives to bring people to church. We do need all of those things, but we need them because the joy of the Lord is our strength and we desire more people to know Jesus. If we desire revival, let's not seek primarily the newest church growth strategies or the newest financial ideas. Let us seek the Lord. Friends, as we look at building a new building, Hope I don't step on toes here. As we look at building a new building, let us not build a new building because we need a new building. 
Let us build a new building because we think we can glorify God with the new building. Let's not plant churches so that we can have, you know, more people who like Calvary Baptist Church and agree with us and think we're awesome. Let us plant churches so that more people will know Jesus and know the Lord. Friends, we need to seek God above all else. Don't you hate it when you say something in public to hundreds of people and you realize that you have to hear it yourself? Because I know for a fact that I don't meet this. I'm saying right now to all of you that we need to seek the Lord above all things. And I'm with you. I know that's hard. I know that's not easy. I know that we don't do it all the time. But it is vitally important because it's not us that brings life. We say that revival is to bring life again. That's actually what the word means. Yet I can't bring life. I can't even bring life into my own heart. To bring life, we need to seek the one who does bring life. That's God. Praise God, we know that he does. We know that, on, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We know that he is the resurrection and the life. If we want life, we seek him. Let's pray. Lord God, may these people have heard a much better sermon than I preached. May they have heard from you. Oh God, where I did said something stupid, I pray that you would correct me and make, my make the congregation who just heard me a little bit more merciful and when they tell me that I, that I made a mistake. But Lord God, I pray that above all, in everything that was said this morning, oh Lord God, shine forth brilliantly, beautifully, so that your people may love you, so that they may have joy in you, Lord God, we desire to have the joy in you because it is the joy of the Lord that is our strength. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said. Amen.